My name is Derek McCollum. I'm the pastor here. If you're new, we want to give you um, a big welcome. We're really thankful that you're here. I would love to meet you if I haven't already. And if you're on the end of the aisle, grab that little leather pad and fill out your information and pass it down. We would love to just uh, get to know you, especially if you're new. Go ahead and give us your information if you'd like. We're not going to spam you. We just want to welcome you. Well, it's a really fun time in the life of our church. Uh, as you heard Kyle say, we turn two today. Today is our second anniversary, and it's really, that's a fun, exciting thing for us. Um, we made it two whole years, which uh, maybe some of us didn't think we would quite get this far, uh, but the Lord has been kind. He's been really good. So we're having a party. We really do hope that you stay for that party. It's also a shift for us because we're shifting seasons and we're shifting even what we study in God's Word. We're starting a sermon series this morning on the life of David. David is Israel's most famous king. You'll know him as the guy who killed Goliath or the guy who wrote a lot of the Psalms or the guy who was a man after God's own heart. David is a fabulous character. He is in many ways the exemplary king of Israel. And he's also a murderer and an adulterer and a liar and a lot of other terrible things. He's a fascinating character for us to study. He's also the precursor of the Messiah. Jesus, when he came, announced that he was coming to sit on the throne of David. So when we study this great king, we are also studying the greater king, great David's greater son, Jesus Christ. I'm excited about that for us this week. We're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, where we see David being chosen as king. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can open it up to 1 Samuel, that's in the Old Testament. And we're going to look at chapter 16 and really read uh, about most of that chapter up through verse 13. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among the nations. Oh, excuse me, a king from among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you should do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. So Samuel did what the Lord commanded, came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And Samuel said, yes, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. So consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, and he made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, 
for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent me, brought him in. And now he was ruddy and beautiful, had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are thankful for your anointed. We are thankful for the proclamation that we have a king, even as unsettling as that can be at times. And we're thankful for your word. So Lord, now we ask that you would open your word to us and open our hearts to it, that we might hear and know and understand, and that we might love you more deeply today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I read a story uh, the other day about a woman who went into the ophthalmologist. She wasn't seeing well. She thought that she had cataracts. She had gotten a little older and just wasn't able to see and thought, well, you know, as many do, I have cataracts and that's what's clouding my vision. Well, as she went in for the cataract surgery, uh, one of the doctors, the anesthetist, actually went in to, to numb her eye and he found something odd. He said, oh, you, you have a contact lens still in your eye. So he took the contact out. Went back in, found another contact. Took that contact in, went back in, found another contact. This woman had 27 contact lenses stuck in one eye. She didn't have a cataract. She just couldn't see through the thick (laughs) glass of all the contacts that were stuck in her eye. She had been wearing disposable contacts for like 35 years, and there were times where she couldn't find a contact in her eye. She thought she had lost it, so she just threw another one in and evidently had done that 27 times. She was having trouble seeing, and the quick fix that she went to to make sure everything was good, that she could see better, uh, really just made her vision worse, didn't it? That idea of seeing how we see is really key to this passage In fact, that story illustrates the fact that we as human beings have a sight deficiency, spiritually speaking, and oftentimes we look to fill that sight deficiency with the wrong things. And one of the great proclamations actually from this passage is that God sees differently than we do. That verb to see in Hebrew shows up seven times in the passage I just read, nine times actually in the chapter as a whole. In fact, it shows up in times maybe that you didn't even hear it. That beginning verse, I have rejected him uh, from king over Israel. Fill your horn and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. Listen to this. For I have provided for myself a king from his sons. Those words are actually in Hebrew, literally, I have seen a king. And then we read in verse 7, really the key verse in all of this, till the Lord says this uh, to Samuel. He says, do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. That's the key in understanding not just this passage, but really what it means to live the Christian life in many ways is that God actually sees differently than we do. God sees differently than we do. We see the limited amount We look at the outside, we look at the things that seem uh, glitzy and shiny and important to us, but God actually sees through it all. 
He sees the whole. He sees the heart. And what God is actually calling Samuel to in this passage, and what he's calling Israel to in this passage, and what he's calling us to is to transfer our trust from our way of seeing to God's way of seeing. To actually begin to take on God's sight to give us the vision that we need for our lives. And friends, when we come in contact with the way that God sees, it is very oftentimes confusing. It is sometimes very humbling, but it is also always loving. That's what we're going to dig into this morning. So what do I mean when I say that God's way of seeing can oftentimes be confusing? Well, picture yourself as Samuel in this passage. You've come to anoint the new king. There's sadness in the land. There's mourning. The old king has been rejected. We actually read in the previous chapter that Samuel is mourning. We open up this chapter with Samuel in mourning, and Samuel is then sent to crown the new king. And as he shows up to Jesse's house, Jesse has all of these sons. They're all lined up from oldest to youngest, and he comes to the first one, Eliab, and he immediately knows this is the guy. Eliab is the firstborn, tall, handsome. He's Mr. Bethlehem High School. You know, he's the big man on campus. He was, he was the homecoming king. He's got a letter jacket that says Big E on the back. Every guy wants to be him. Every girl wants to be with him. That's Eliab. And Samuel immediately thinks, well, that's king stuff right there. This is the guy. I mean, he's commanding. He's got presence. He's got power. He looks awesome. And God says, that's not the one. Samuel, you only see the outside. I see the whole. Samuel is seeing differently than God is seeing. Don't we do this all the time? I mean, how terribly stuck on appearance are we all the time? Here's a stat for you. Uh, women who would like to change something about their appearance, guess what the percentage is? 99. Congratulations to that 1% that's content. How about this one, though? Women who claim that their husbands spend more time in the bathroom than they do, 67%. It's not just the ladies' problem, guys. We are all about the image. Friends, I stand up here in front of you every week, and I desperately want to impress you. Honestly, there's the little dark secret about pastors, is that we are like junkies for this. Any kind of appreciation we can get, any kind of feedback, any kind of, oh, you're so wonderful. I mean, it's just like a drug shooting us up here. And we're all like that. We want it so badly. We want to be the ones who externally have everything together. We want to be the ones who appear to be wonderful to everyone else's eyes. We want to be the ones who are great. We want to be Eliab. And what's more... We want all of our leaders to be that guy too. We want Eliab saviors, don't we? I mean, the vast majority of presidential candidates, it's the taller guy who wins. Over the course, especially of the television period, it's overwhelmingly the taller and usually the one who's better looking. That's the way we want our leaders. We want them tall and good looking and commanding and powerful. And we think that the things that look shiny on the outside are going to be the things that save us. Where's the new car? Where's the new house? Where's the new vacation? 
Where's the shiny, fun, exciting thing that's going to be my Savior this week? We all tend to do that, don't we? But isn't it just like God to say, all of that stuff you think is going to save you, it's meaningless. And it's not that God dislikes pretty people. We actually learn that David is very handsome. It's just that it doesn't mean any more or less to him. It means so much to us. And isn't it beautiful that God totally reverses the way that we oftentimes think about leadership in this passage? It's the story of the hidden gem, right? You've heard these stories all the time. The, the gem dealer who walks through, you know, uh, the, 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 the rock show and finds this thing on, a, uh, on somebody's booth, a 1,900-carat sapphire that he buys for $10 that ends up being the largest sapphire by more than 800 carats that's ever been found. Or the other day I heard about, uh, you know, the street artist Banksy. Have you heard of this guy? He decided that he was going to set up, you know, he was going to find somebody uh, incognito and paint some paintings and have this guy actually just sell them in Central Park. And he was selling them for $60. Original Banksy's for $60. You know what most people did? They walked right by. They just didn't know it was him. But this is a guy who literally, when he paints something on a wall, people will buy the building so that they can have the wall. I'm not kidding you. Okay, but they were passing right by in the park because they thought he was just another run-of-the-mill art vendor with nothing. Or, of course, the great film, The Sword in the Stone, with little Arthur who barely can even wear the clothes he has because they're too big, and he's the one who looks weak and scrawny, and he's the only one who can actually pour the sword, pull the sword out of the stone and wield Excalibur. He's the king. This is the beauty of what God does it is so oftentimes totally contrary to the way that we think about people, but God doesn't choose the way we choose. God doesn't see the way that we see. God actually does things so oftentimes that are very confusing to us and very beautiful. Now here's the second piece though, is that not only can God's seeing, God's choosing, God's ordaining be confusing to us, it can oftentimes be very humbling too. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, Samuel, when he shows up on the scene here, actually, if you, if you know the story of 1 Samuel, you know that when Samuel shows up, he's actually a pretty big deal. Samuel, if you read the first half of 1 Samuel, like he's the main character in most of it. He is not only the prophet, but we're told he is actually the judge of all Israel. And in the Old Testament, judge was more than just somebody who decided, you know, in a courtroom. The judge was actually the savior, the leader, and the one who gave wisdom and counsel. And so Samuel was doing this for all of Israel. Even once they had chosen a king and Saul, we actually read that Samuel judged Israel all of his life. And when we open up this chapter 16, he comes to Bethlehem and he shows up. What's everybody's emotion? They're scared. Samuel's here. What's going to happen to us? Something must be wrong. Why would Samuel show up to our tiny little village? Okay, Samuel's a big deal. People know him. He has many leather-bound books. He's a big deal. And when he shows up, it should feel like this is the guy who knows it all. This is the guy who's the most mature. This is the guy who has it all together. This is the godly man, the prophet. But did you notice what happens? Samuel has to go through every one of Jesse's sons. One by one, that's not the guy. Next, that's not the guy. 
you can almost hear him saying, like, for real, Lord. Like, let's just get on with this. But he takes him through every single son to say, Samuel, you're not looking with my eyes. You're looking with yours. Okay, big point here to get is that the kingdom is only safe when God is in control. That's what's resounding to us from this passage. The kingdom is only safe when God is in control. And friends, the life of those who live in the kingdom is only safe when God is the one who's doing the seeing. Our lives are only directed properly. Our lives are only safe when it's God who is doing the choosing, when it's God who is doing the seeing. Because we see differently than God does. We look at the external, God looks at the heart. We see only in part, God sees the whole. And he is calling us to transfer our trust from our way of seeing to his way of seeing. Even when it's confusing, even when it is deeply humbling. Here's a third piece though, and this one's encouraging. Not only is God's way of seeing oftentimes confusing for us and maybe even uh, very frustrating and very humbling for us, but it is always loving to us. God is always loving. This is uh, amazing when you read and open up this uh, chapter 16, you hear God say to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? So again, the first half of, of 1 Samuel is not only about Samuel, but about Saul, Israel's first king. And Saul's story is really a pretty tragic story. There are some ups, but there's some pretty hard downs. And Saul, as we open up, seems really kingly. We read actually in chapter 9 that he is the best looking guy in the country. He's taller than everybody else. He's more handsome than everybody else. But what he's done is he's actually led Israel into some terrible times. In some very key places, Saul has actually trusted in his way of seeing rather than the Lord's. And the Lord has now taken Saul away from the throne. He's the wrong leader for God's people. And so when we open up chapter 16, actually we, we kind of have a lot of tension in the story. We have God's people really with a big question mark. And even us as a reader with a big question mark, what's going to happen is God going to let his people just kind of go without a king? Are they going to go without a leader? Will the, she will the sheep not have a shepherd to lead and guide them? Are they just going to kind of fall apart and the story's going to really just end right here at the beginning? And of course, God's loving and wonderful answer is no. I'm not going to let my kingdom fall apart. I'm not going to let my promises fall. I'm not going to let the seed that I promised of this woman in Genesis 3 that was going to rescue the world, I'm not going to let that line fall apart. I'm going to be true to my promises, to my people, and to the world. We hear God saying that really, really clearly. God is not going to leave his people without a leader. But isn't this great too, is that God is not going to let them in their own choosing choose the wrong leader. You see what's going on here with Samuel? Eliab steps to the front. He's the natural choice. He's tall and good looking and everything seems great. Well, there should be bells going off in everybody's head. Samuel's about to choose Saul again. He's about to choose exactly the same guy that just led them into trouble. And God is not going to let his people do that. See, this is what's so beautiful about even the humbling that so oftentimes comes, is that God will oftentimes humble us to keep us 
from making stupid decisions. He will oftentimes humble us to save us from our own saviors, to save us from ourselves, to save us from the things that we think we're seeing so clearly and so easily and so wonderful. And God has to come in and say, no, you're not seeing the way that I see. You see what's outside. You see a little. I see the whole. Transfer your trust to my way of seeing rather than your own. And isn't it beautiful that the Lord would do that for his people and for us? That he would actually save them from making the same mistakes over and over so that he could come and rescue them. Often confusing, often humbling, always loving. Now let's just talk practically just for a second. How do we do this? If we're being called then to transfer our trust from our way of seeing to God's way of seeing, how do we do that? Three quick things. The first is this, is that we look through the lens of Scripture. We look through the lens of what God has given us, revealed to us as his word to us. I've said this many times, but one of the beauties of Christianity is that God has not said, I'm hiding somewhere, come find me. There is no journey that we have to take. There is no pilgrimage that we have to set off on. There is no system that we have to accomplish. God has said, if you want to know me, here I am. And if we want to train ourselves to see as God sees, if we are going to do that, well, then we've got to soak ourselves in the lens of Scripture. We've got to soak ourselves in His Word so that that muscle memory actually develops in us. So that when decision time comes, we start to just intuitively make decisions based not on our own understanding, but on who God is. So that's the first one. If you want to trust more in God's way of seeing than your own, then first, soak yourself in God's word. Look through the lens of the scriptures. Here's the second one, is look through the lens of community. God has given us to each other. Your walk with the Lord is not something that you do alone. When you experience the truth in community, you will grow and change in a different way than if you experience it alone. God has made us for one another. And so when we start to see our lives through that community lens, it changes things. Here's a very particular way we can do that. Is simply invite people into your life that can speak the truth to you. Invite people into your life that can say things that you may not always want to hear. Invite people into your life that are going to help you see who God is when your blinders are on or when you have tunnel vision or when you're just blind or when you've decided, I'm going to do this on my own and you know, stuff 27 contact lenses in your eye. Invite others in to help. And then here's the third piece, is that we look through the lens of the cross. See, the, one of the real beauties of this passage is that the more that we come to see the way God sees, the more that we also come to see the one he has sent. I mean, we should, have, we should be the ones who have the bells going off in our head here too. We've got a little town of Bethlehem, and we've got somebody that no one would have chosen, and we've got some sheep and some cattle around, and we've got someone traveling from miles away to come and proclaim this king. See, David is setting the pattern for the Messiah. He is setting the pattern that when we open up the New Testament, we see, oh, all these dots that were set, now we can see the lines that connect them. Jesus, David's greater son, 
the one in the line of David who would even supersede him, the one who would surpass him in holiness, the one who not was, just a, was not just a man after God's own heart, but actually had God's heart, is the one that we're pointed to. And let me just draw your attention to this as we close. Did you realize the context happening in this story? When Samuel shows up to Bethlehem, remember what he shows up with? A cow. Now, that seems weird, but he shows up with a cow because he's bringing that heifer to sacrifice. In fact, the context, the backdrop of all of this going on is sacrifice. It's as if the oil is pouring out onto David to anoint him as king, the same time the blood is pouring out to atone for sin. We have this amazing proclamation of both of these things together, and in Jesus, we find them together. We have the king the Messiah, the anointed one, the king of not only his people but of all of the world and the king who would come not just to perfectly rule and govern and judge and lead, but the king who would come and lay himself down to pour himself out for others that his blood might atone for our sin. Friends, if you have never met this king, let me invite you to investigate him this morning. Open God's word. Come find me. Come find a friend. Let's talk about who Jesus is. And if you have known him all your life, let me invite you to dig a little deeper today, to move your trust from your own way of seeing to that of the king, to see not only his sacrifice and love and grace for you, but also the way that he has called you to trust him, to follow him, to serve him, to lay your life down for others as he has laid his life down for you. That's what we're called to today. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are thankful for your word and we are thankful for you, our King. Lord, even as we open uh, your word and we read of David, who no one would have chosen, we're reminded, Lord, of the words of Isaiah that there was nothing of the Messiah to attract us. There was nothing about how good-looking you were or how mighty you seemed that might make us think this is a great leader. And Lord, as we open up the New Testament, we see you born in a lowly estate. We see you born in poverty. We see this one that seems to have even a checkered family history as the one who has been proclaimed as the Messiah. Lord, it's so confusing to us. It's so humbling to us. But Lord, what amazing grace that the king would come, that the king would come and take the kingdom upon his shoulders and that he would come and lay himself down for his subjects. But that's who we are. Will you show us what it's like to follow you today? We pray this in Jesus' name.